We just live right now, man. It's going down, excited for the season. You know, we coming off a playoff win. I mean, you know, we had a couple wins. You're in a lot of trouble, and maybe it's because... Well, sorry, Canada. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> Toronto. And because Philly sucks. I feel like I fear Boston most of all out of any of the Eastern Conference teams. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Nah. This is the Brew Hoop Podcast, episode 70. The season in memoriam episode after the just mountains of excitement we had last week. That that episode didn't have uh, a lot of relevance after we recorded it, uh, given the Bucks lost game five that night and their season has ended. But there's a lot of questions going into this offseason. And I am Adam Paris, co-managing editor of BrewHoop.com, and very excited to talk through it all, solve all of the, all of the problems the Bucks are going to have. We're going to come up with great solutions. And I'm joined by Kyle Carr and Riley Feldman to do so. Fellas, how are you doing? It's a little sad today, guys. Um, you're right, Adam, that unfortunately the hour and a half that we went last week became immediately irrelevant 12 hours after it posted, uh, which is pretty painful. But um, in many ways, that was exactly how the season was going to end, uh, regardless of the hype that we had, um, except for the dreams that we had that it might actually happen, we might make history. That did not happen. Uh, just pretty unfortunate, but probably for the best. And uh, at least we get it out of the way now. We can start talking instead of like coming off of or going into a game seven or whatever the situation would have been and like all the emotions after that. It's for the best that we're nice and neutral and calm days after to kind of get a feel for uh, where we might be going with this team. So I'm doing good otherwise. Yeah, I mean, if there is one positive of losing on a Tuesday, it was, or was it Monday? Monday or Tuesday? At least we've had, like Riley said, we've had days to sit down, actually process it, not fire off the hottest of hot takes. Um, based on emotion. Um, so I guess there's that. Otherwise, things are fine. Boss Fitzgerald and Seineke are still bitch-ass cowards, and yeah. That over everything. That is 100% true. Um, were you guys more sad after game? I felt like it it reached its lowest point after game three. That's when I felt like things were even darker than after game five. Because game five felt like an inevitability. But game three felt like that was the the lowest point for everyone. Yeah, yeah I, I would agree. I, I, I think it was like game three, it was just such an utter disaster. Once you get to three games down, because then at that point, all your hope is gone as it is. First two games, like, oh, maybe if you take game three, you can convince yourself that something might happen positive in game four and beyond. But once you get to game three, it's like, wow, I can't believe this is actually happening. Everybody's looking at each other awkwardly like, well, guess we suck now. And uh, that's that's a tough pill to swallow after the season that they had. So I would say, definitely say that game three was a lot harder. Game five, you know, it would have been cool. But as soon as Giannis was listed out, it's like, this is going to be a hell of a mountain to climb. And uh, unfortunately... The other non-Chris guys didn't step up in the way to like make it. So they looked okay for the first quarter, but it just kind of seemed like it was all over after game three. And after that, it was just playing with house money. Yeah, game three, especially when you see that lead in the end of the third quarter, beginning of the fourth quarter, just disappear. That's when, that's when you kind of realize the series is over, regardless of I mean, maybe Milwaukee pulls off four wins, but highly unlikely. 
and then Giannis gets hurt at the beginning of game four and he leaves and then you're thinking yep that's that's it and then they win which is cool but then you're still thinking to yourself how I don't know how long it's gonna last so it was definitely at the end of game three that was kind of like a it's gonna take a near miracle for it to happen but I don't like the odds so yeah, game three and game one are probably the two that, looking back on it, are more frustrating than anything else. Yeah, I actually found myself enjoying games four and five maybe more than any other game that entire Bucks season. Uh, it felt like we had, we felt like we had gone to the point where our backs against the wall. Finally, any expectations of us succeeding were essentially nil, and we could kind of go back to the usual like, well, the Bucks blew it. Anything we get now is a little bit of bonus. Um, and, uh, you know, there was very little chance of, of them doing so. So, I don't know. I found those games pretty enjoyable to watch uh, with with the the lift of expectations finally off of, off of our shoulders. But, guys, we have a ton of questions that people submitted, like an insane amount of questions. So, thank you to everyone who did that on Brew Hoop. And this is a mailbag episode. And so, just... Let's get into it. The first one we're going to start with are some general questions. This I thought this was a good one to start and can kind of give us a chance to talk about the season in review. This was from Munchtime. How do you judge this season? A, was the season a success? 56 wins at a 63-win pace, all the individual awards. B, was the season a failure? Second-round playoff exit. C, can we even make this call, given all of the external factors, COVID, bubble, etc.? Where do you sort of land on that spectrum, Riley? I would say that the season was a failure and it's kind of a mix of B and C to me because if COVID doesn't happen, then maybe you get like the home court advantage and maybe that makes enough of a difference to change the outcome. But to me, at the end of the day, whether we like it or not, a lot of what basketball discourse is today, and it seems like for a long time as well, is everything that happens the regular season is cool. Um, it's notable if you have great awards, if you have guys who win MVPs, if guys win like defensive player of the year, coach of the year, whatever it happens to be, that's all great. But at the end of the day, when we look at this team a decade from now, or it might even be just five years or something like that, what's going to be its legacy? And the legacy will be partially the fact that they stood up for social injustice against social injustice, I should say, in the bubble. And that'll be notable. But in terms of on the court legacy, this team won't have a lot. And instead it's going to be Giannis's legacy. And that's fine if he personally continues to have success either with Milwaukee or later on, whatever it is, if he wins championships, that'll help burnish his legacy. But this team, this iteration of the Bucks, his time so far with the team, it's just kind of been a roller coaster and just a, a, a litany of, failures when it counts most, which is the playoffs, again, for good or for ill. So I would say overall a failure. Um, I've seen a lot of people were like, well, we watched this team suck for so, so long. It's just great to see them have success, which is true. But unfortunately for any of us, um, at the end of the day, the discussion comes back to, do you have championships? Did you even reach the finals? And so far, this team has not been able to get reach the mountaintop on that. So for me, this season was a failure in that regard. Yeah, I would also call it a failure um, just because this team had the expectation of making the finals and at worst make the Eastern Conference finals and maybe you lose to Toronto again. You know, it was going to be if you didn't lose in Toronto, the Eastern Conference finals, you had to make the finals. Even if you didn't win the championship, 
I think making the finals would have been okay with everyone else because then it showed this team can get to that point. But it didn't happen. Um, and to lose in a gentleman's sweep to a Miami Heat team that they played really, really well and they outplayed the Bucks that whole series. But I don't know if you can confidently say they talent-wise are better than Milwaukee. But they are a harder working team, they're a better coach team, and they are a team that can expose a lot of the flaws that the Milwaukee Bucks had, which makes it difficult to process. And again, you lose in five. Granted, you know, having not having Giannis for game five didn't help, but at the same time, they had lost the first three games anyway. And what it just is frustrating because you do all this work in the regular season. And yes, COVID did throw a wrench in the plan, but that doesn't mean that if there was home court advantage, maybe Milwaukee wins game one and or like one of the first two games and they don't lose the first three. I don't know. But at the same time, every team had the same playing field. Every team had the bubble. Every team had a neutral court. So it really came down to can you execute and play better than your opponent? And unfortunately for Milwaukee, that didn't happen. So it's kind of tough to gauge what the impact COVID had. But at the same time, it's not like Milwaukee was going to, they were not able to play in Pfizer form and had to go to every other team's arena or you know, they didn't have the luck. It's not like Miami was able to bring fans into this neutral site because Miami is a lot shorter of a drive. To, it's three-hour drive to Orlando, so you can make that trip. So it's kind of hard to really justify using, you know, COVID as a prime example. I think it threw off a lot of the momentum. I think it threw off a lot of the rhythm that they had, but it's still a failure. It still comes down to this team we expected to at least make the Eastern Conference Finals. Most of us thought they would make the finals, and a good chunk of us thought they could win the whole thing. And to go out in the second round of five games, I, I, you got to call it a failure. And that's not even putting into effect how they lost in the series. It's just the fact that they lost this early. Yeah, I think I think it's I think it's hard to call it anything but a failure, just given the preseason expectations on this team, what the owners were expecting, partially when they you know, discussed some of their, their moves. Clearly they felt that this team was primed for championship contention. Um, you know, even if they decided not to go into the luxury tax for Malcolm Brogdon, which we'll talk about for our next question. Uh, I, clearly they had an idea of what this team was capable of. The media had an idea of what they were capable of. The regular season expectations set the postseason expectations in the future. That probably won't be the case just given they've had two flameouts here and the narrative of the, I think it's important to remember that the way they've lost these last two years is going to inform essentially what all of the media thinks about them. It, you know, the flame out against Toronto was essentially the narrative for the Bucks all year. If they hadn't lost four straight, uh, if that game had, if it had even gone to a game seven, um, I think that, I think the narrative would have been a little bit different, but given the types of ways they've lost these last two years, uh, I think they're, I think they're in a lot of trouble in terms of people, expecting anything from them in the regular season to translate into the postseason, And yeah, obviously the COVID stuff and everything did seem to throw off the team. There was a little bit of, of dip in play, I would say from like February through March, we could see with the Bucks before COVID happened. And also it seems like we're about to see in the West, the teams were recording this before the Clippers Nuggets game six, but it seems like we're probably going to have chalk in the West which would be the Lakers and Clippers. And then in the East, I think you could kind of, I mean, 
Toronto lost, but like Toronto and Boston were pretty close, I would say, for most of the year. So that's like not that wasn't crazy that Boston won, but we're basically going to be getting, you know, the best teams in each conference besides Milwaukee, which is how it usually happens in the NBA. So there, you know, there's not a lot of argument to say like, wow, this threw everyone off. This is what a, what a, this was, this isn't like the NHL, right? We're not getting crazy upsets besides Milwaukee who seemed to, who seemed to be like one of the major upsets so far. So I think it's impossible to call it probably anything but a failure. Um, yeah, I don't know. Anything else you guys want to say about just the season in general? Yeah. The only other thing is it sucks the way that it ended, obviously. I think in some ways it was less painful. Not in some ways. In many ways it was less painful than the Toronto Raptors series because at that point we were like on the cusp and <laughs> you just have, I mean, utter disaster. This is an utter disaster as well, but I think in many ways hopefully it's instructive and I think it hopefully jars the team a little bit more because the lesson from last year was run it back and like trying to get more KG vets and maybe that'll get us over the hump. This will hopefully knock out any sort of like lethargy on the part of the front office or anybody. They're in a tough spot because it's going to be hard given the contracts that they sign and the guys that they signed up for long-term to really fundamentally change this team, but we can't run it back. That can't be the option. There's going to be a lot of dudes who are on the bench who are going to be like, iffy whether or not they'll be back or they'll be unrestricted or they'll be you know free agent status it sucks the way it ended but hopefully this will push the team to make some different choices instead of let's just do some tinkering with the roster and hope if you get like a guy who's a better three-point shooter that'll do it for us because i'm not sure if that's going to be the solution so um compared to last season both seasons are failures but because they're failures based off of the similar strategy maybe that'll force some change and maybe that'll help out our odds in the future for if we do a little bit better. I don't know. That's the only kind of positive I can take away from it. I think the only positive I can take away from it, it's weird because I don't know if it should be a positive is at least with next year, the regular season 100% will not matter how Milwaukee does or how they do it unless Bud tries to do different things. If he tries to change his scheme, if he tries new ideas, Maybe we see a player make, like, maybe someone like Dante can make a leap, and that's something we can monitor. But otherwise, it's really going to make the regular season next year, whenever that starts. Um, For me, it's going to be a little bit irrelevant, almost, because it's going to come back to, well, we've seen two regular seasons where Milwaukee has dominated and have done really, really well. But it's not going to answer any of the questions going into the postseason unless we see significant changes from Budenholzer or even the roster or a combination of the two. So at least it makes it less stressful to worry about it. And, you know, if I think I'm going to look at it as through the social media lens, I could care less what anyone's going to say about the Milwaukee Bucks during the regular season because, as we've seen, it won't matter until it gets to the playoffs. So if the Milwaukee Bucks do poorly, then maybe that's something to monitor, but at least regular season won't matter for them. But if they do well, cool, they're doing what they're supposed to. But now we got to see, are they going to do it in the postseason? So I think for me, that's kind of the silver lining in all this is it makes next year's regular season a little less stressful in terms of trying to care what national media or even local media think in terms of trying to put into stock players' performances, you know, unless Boone puts in significant changes, I think the impact's going to be relatively low. 100% agree. All right, let's move on to the next question. This is also a general one. This is from a Mitchell 
Maurer, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, it's Mitch Murmur. Murmur if you pronounce uh, it correctly. Okay, all right, Murmur. thank you. Um, <laughs> why is it that everyone, outside of Brew Hoop, that is, is so eager to nail the bucks, more specifically ownership, for not retaining Malcolm Brogdon because of the financial considerations and completely ignoring the injury concerns that precipitated his fall in the draft in the first place? Uh, I'm just going to quiet down and let the um, let Kyle and Riley just go a couple rounds here. Uh, the 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 Brogdon uh, defender and uh, the prosecution and defense. So go ahead. Uh, the people who are watching on YouTube will see me stretch out because I've been waiting 365 plus days for this, boys. Uh, no, the <laughs> I'm so moved on again from the Brogdon situation. The the reason why people nail the team for it is one, you have to be in the fan base and really go deep down the rabbit hole to like find the space where everybody. Malcolm Brogdon went from Mr. President to the most reviled former Buck in maybe decades. So that happened, but you have to be really in it to understand that. And part of that has to do with the injury concerns. The main issue is one, it's easy to make fun of billionaires because billionaires have more money than us. And it looks obvious when they cheap out. And in that situation, Mark Lazary went on the record and said, oh, we pay the luxury tax if we thought it would be helpful. But we don't think that Malcolm is a luxury. So they just went on the record like, well, we don't want to pay for that. Okay, fine, whatever. And two, um, I think it was helped out in this case by the fact that Malcolm Brogdon played all the games against Miami. He led the the um, Pacers in minutes played. Yes, he had the months ahead of time, but he had COVID, all those sorts of things. And he did have injury issues during the season. But if you're just looking at it from the outside, he didn't really follow all that deeply. You just have this really straightforward point where he departs the team the guys who they tried to replace him with didn't really step up in a way that you could theorize Malcolm Brogdon would have been able to and then Brogdon played in the playoffs so like the injury prone thing kind of went to the side so that in my opinion those are the two reasons why we don't talk about that and everybody's kind of nailing the team for it I have been saying for over a year I think at the end of last year, even before the decision was made, I don't feel comfortable paying Malcolm Brogdon over $20 million a year to essentially do what he does. And yes, the owner still cheaped out, but Malcolm Brogdon wasn't going to fix what happened in Milwaukee this year. He was not going to fix Milwaukee losing to Miami in the manner that they did. And the reason for that is what happened to Milwaukee was a lot of schematic incompetence from Budenholzer. It was Giannis still not figuring out the wall. And it was also simply Milwaukee got out hustled and burned by players on the, on the Miami Heat, most notably Goran Dragic, Tyler Hero. I don't think Brogdon's going to fix any of that. And at the same po- at the same time, yes, it is a lot easier to blame the owners for cheaping out. It is a lot easier for looking at it that way. And hell, you can even say maybe they should have gone with Brogdon instead of Bledsoe. But at the same time, if anyone's thinking because Milwaukee didn't keep Brogdon as the reason they lost the series, it's completely missing the point and they just want to dunk on said billionaire. So that's been my main issue is Milwaukee's issues have run a lot deeper than simply not having Malcolm Brogdon because Yes, maybe him being there would not result in someone like George Hill coming back. Or they would decide not to bring in Wes Matthews or Pat Connaughton, you know, or Kyle Corver, you know, guys that 
not necessarily other than West really surpass the expectations of what we hope for them. So sure you run with the same starting five, you still have the issues of the bench, but I don't know. At this point, trying to pin it on Milwaukee, not keeping Malcolm Brogdon just seems like a lazy way to get likes and retweets and cool tweets on Twitter. The billions are still cheap, but I can understand not wanting to pay $20 million for a guy that's not going to take you to that next level. And I think the point, again, it's easy for somebody to look from the outside and be like, all the guys that weren't Malcolm weren't nothing really in the playoffs. So like George Hill was fine. He wasn't George Hill a year ago. Okay. Wes is fine, good on defense, but he, he the most you're going to get out of him is like three made threes. That was just his play this year, which is fine. That's what he was, the role he was put in. But it's like difficult when you're seeing the numbers that Malcolm can put up as the main ball handler. And yes, Indiana plays like an older school style where they do a lot of pick and roll and that fits well with what Malcolm does. But there's a lot of argument you could say they ran it back. They tried to do the same system that they did a year ago, which does not necessarily use a very good traditional ball handler because you have Eric Bledsoe as the main guy that sunk the team. They, they didn't have a different look. And I think for all the faults that Malcolm Brogdon has, he does have a different look about now, whether or not he would be able to just impose it on the court or whatever. I, I hate, I hate talking about Malcolm Brogdon because it's going to, it's going to be the inflection point for this team because it's the most obvious departure guy that you drafted was really good rookie of the year. Yes, he has some, the injury issues, which is a fair point is should also be part of the conversation, but he's just going to be the most obvious free agent that they let go. They they traded for him. They got an asset back, which is great, but there's always going to be somebody second guessing saying, maybe you should have gone for this player over him. Maybe um, you should have just paid him and made it work and you have an asset. There's a whole bunch of different ways. And unfortunately for the team, because they didn't win, this is going to be the price that they have to pay is the narrative that if they kept this guy, maybe it would turn out different. And who knows? Maybe it would have. I have no idea. He, I. I personally still think he's a good player. I think most people can objectively say he's a good player. You can just kind of quibble about does he fit well with what the team would do. And even if he doesn't in his current style, the current style didn't win. So maybe there needs to be a change in the style and maybe him being on the roster would allow that. I don't know. We don't need to talk about it much more, but I think we've established why people nail because it was the obvious departure and billionaires are easy to make fun of. That's kind of the main two things in my opinion. And also the same people that are complaining about walking, not keeping Malcolm Brogdon would have been the same ones that would have complained about Brogdon's faults for dribbling too much, for not giving the ball to Giannis in transition, for not being healthy. I can only imagine if Brogdon was injured or out during the playoffs, then everyone would be like, I can't believe we just spent 20 plus million on a guy that can't even be on the court. So it's like, you can't, you can't go back and use hindsight every time to justify whether the Brogdon decision was right. Like there, there were a bunch of red flags. He is a very talented player. Never deny that. He would have been better than everyone outside of Giannis, Chris, and Brooke on the roster. But the same red flags that we had about him were the same red flags that he showed in Indiana. It's just that within his role, he was able to increase his production which all, because he also increases usage. I just don't. I just know that most of the people that are criticizing the owners for not making that decision would have been the same ones that would have criticized the owners for paying 20 plus million dollars for a guy that doesn't stay healthy and doesn't pass the ball to Giannis and drops too much. Uh, that was good. That was good. I mean, all I'm going to say is, I mean, 
he didn't you didn't play for most of the playoffs last year. Uh, granted, he played really well against Toronto, which was good. Um, against Miami, I just want to point this out. It's fine. He would have been the third option in Milwaukee, but against Miami, he did shoot um, six for 18, four for 14, 11 for 17. Good game. He lost by nine, and then five for 16 uh, in the first round, which is fine. It seemed kind of also seemed like Malcolm Brogdon maybe wanted a bigger role, which I can't blame the dude. I mean, he got 20 million. Now Indiana's locker room kind of seems in flux too. Seems like Victor Oladipo seems like he kind of got big dogged by Malcolm Brogdon when he went down there too, um, which is fine. Like if you want a bigger role, then you're not going to get it in Milwaukee. So definitely head down to Indiana. Like, you know, that's totally fine by me. You should go do your thing. Um, if the Bucks really valued you enough, they would have paid enough. Um, but I think there were genuine concerns when he decided to leave. Uh, but you're right, Riley, that, you know, especially from the outside looking in, people are going to be able to point to this a lot. But let's move on because we have a lot more questions to get to. This one is from uh, BSA Live, who gave us a ton of questions. Probably won't be able to get to all of them, but there were some really good thought-provoking ones in there. Just this one's good. Real quick, who do you think will be the fall guy or plural guys for this season? Riley, who do you oh, think? That's easy. <laughs> this is tough. I want to go plural. My three would be Bledsoe, Bud, and Horst. I don't think you really need a lot of explanation on the three. Bledsoe, I don't know if you could say it's fault of his own. He's just not the player that we need as a point guard. This is three postseasons now. He's had total disappearances in a round, which is not acceptable for your lead point guard. Budenholzer, that's a whole rabbit hole. I'm sure we'll get into that, but <laughs> that's straight up obvious. And then Horst, the guys that they brought in, this contracts that they signed this past year, it didn't work. And at the end of the day, he, I don't know what the split between him and uh, Budenholzer in terms of personnel decisions or what the structure is necessarily, but he's the guy who's the GM. He's the guy who brought in these guys. It didn't work out. And at the end of the day, the buck will stop with him, uh, assuming he has any sort of decision-making power and that Lazary isn't actually making all the moves in the backyard, uh, you know, in the back room. So those are my three guys, Budenholzer, Bledsoe, Horst. I'm going to add to that. I'm adding Lazary because, you know, at the end of the day, he kind of said, we're not paying this guy. We're not paying Brogdon. And I don't know how much of an impact that had in terms of Horst being able to find replacements. You know, Horst kind of used that to bring in Kyle Corvin, to bring in Wes Matthews, and to give George Hill a new contract. So, you know, I think because of that, it kind of had a trickle-down effect. Maybe Lazary didn't tell them to find all these alternatives, but he pretty much essentially said, we're not paying Brogdon, so you got to go and find guys to replace him. Um, so I'm adding Lazary to the mix. I'm adding Sterling Brown and DJ Wilson and Mike Thompson. <laughs> I'm adding the bench because what really made Milwaukee, what hurt Milwaukee was the lack of improvement for Sterling Brown, the lack of DJ Wilson being any credible player, and the bench in general completely falling apart in this series. George Hill and Dante were the only ones that you can kind of say had moments, but we know Pat Connaughton's flaws. It's not going to get better. Like you have to look at the bench as well because when Chris Middleton was sitting, that bench continuously allowed Miami to get into run. So I'm adding them as the fall guys as well, um, just because it wouldn't be fair to pin it all on Bledsoe and Budenholzer because at the same time, I look at it with Budenholzer, if your bench isn't doing anything, you kind of have to stick with Bledsoe. Bledsoe's not doing enough. 
And we now know offensively, he's not the guy to help Milwaukee. Defensively, he can maybe do the job that you need to, but offensively, it's not it. So I'm just adding the bench as well because they are just as culpable for Milwaukee's collapses, especially in game two, than Budenholzer and Bloodstone Horse. Do you, do you guys not have Giannis? Hey, man, you can't make fun of the golden child. Come on. I, I I'm think like, I mean, if we do that, someone's going to take a clip and say Giannis is leaving based off of these three guys. And I know we have a couple <laughs> Giannis questions later on. Um, so that's why I'm not completely. I mean, yes, Giannis deserves a fair share of the blame, but we'll get to the other reasons later on. Okay, that's fine. I think he would be up there for me. I mean, whatever. I, he obviously struggled. Maybe he was injured. He got hurt. But I don't know. He didn't play very well. He just didn't play very well. And if you're if your mega superstar who is going to lead you to a championship is like the third best player in the series, you're that's not good. That's not good at all. Mm-hmm. Nope. Uh, all right, we'll talk more about Giannis later. I don't have anyone to add to your guys' follow guys. If we want, I would say it's pretty soon. We were about to go the whole roster. We we're about to name. That was going to be my next one. Is it be like Robin Lopez? I want to blame Robin in particular. <laughs> Most improved buck. Never forget. Oh, Robin. Great work. Okay. Um, okay. This one's kind of tied into that. This is from BSA Live as well. What would it take next year to erase this playoff failure from our mind? So what kind of success do you think you would need from the Bucks next year to try and erase this awful experience from your mind? The only thing that I I just wrote down in all caps, don't run it back. The only thing I need to go into next season and to have, again, another flicker of hope is if we've changed up the roster a little bit, whether that be as simple as like, let's get a new point guard in, just give me a different look because the top five, as good as they were, it seems like they have too many flaws to be able to um, meaningful, meaningfully succeed in the playoffs. And so for me, erase this playoffs there's going to be no erasing it unless of course we win a championship but to lessen the pain to make next season compelling for me instead of another 82 games and then we're going to be out in the second round or whatever it's just going to be can we have a slightly different roster and if there's any sort of experimentation on Budenholzer's part so those are my two things it's tough to quantify that but those are going to be what I'm looking for in the offseason to help lessen the pain of this exit yeah for me it's Budenholzer quantifying a, a plan b or a second scheme um, if he shows the ability to improvise and change things up, I will feel a little bit better going to the postseason because at least I know he might be able to go to it when he needs to. We know plan A works, but there was no plan B that was apparent. And hoping that there's a plan B would give me a flicker of hope. I don't think anything other than a championship or at least a run that convinces Giannis to sign a Supermax is going to erase the playoff failure. I appreciate both of you. You guys went with, with process-oriented answers, it felt like, versus results-oriented answers. That was that was really nice of you. It, in, the, in the mold of uh, Wes Edens, we were, were about the – wait, no. He was about results, not the process, right? Never mind. So we're, <laughs> we're like Philly now. We, unfortunately, we're the Philly, uh, the Philly podcast, so that's where we are right now after two, two failures like this. All right. Well, I, I actually am glad you guys you guys both were talking about Bud, so we may as well move on. These next questions are kind of about strategy. A bunch of them from uh, Old Resorter, who 
you know, we're definitely going to try our best to answer, but I think Older's Order from Brew Hoop will have better strategic answers than I could ever hope to answer. But his first one is just, um, will Bud continue to be a one-size-fits-all system coach? And then uh, just tag on, this is from 30-point buck, is it Bud's system or the players who execute it? I think those are kind of tied together. So I'd be curious your guys' thoughts on on, on both of those. Kyle, I don't know if you have a strong feeling on this. If Bud wants to continue keeping his job, he better not be a one-size-fits-all person next year because it's clear that teams can formulate a way to stop plan A, and plan A is really, really good with the current starting five. Plan A works well enough to get you close enough to a finals with the starting five. However, plan A falls apart if teams are able to counter it, and then if he doesn't have a plan B, then he's going to get – coach off the floor we've seen it now in two consecutive postseasons so yes if bud wants to keep his job i would strongly recommend not being a one-size-fits-all system coach um in terms of if it's bud systems or the players who execute it i i mean i would say it's still more bud system he's still the one that puts it in place it kind of reminds me of the bow ryan wisconsin badgers where they run the swing offense and you know they're running the swing offense it doesn't matter which players you throw in there they're going to run that swing offense so can you really put it on the players for doing the thing that they've been practicing? And if they deviate from the system, then they might get benched. Definitely not worth the risk, in my opinion. Um, I mean, these guys are wanting to do whatever it takes to play on the court. So they're going to run the system that they're told to run. So I, I'd say it's more bud than the players themselves. Yeah. So the question, Older Zorda's question about will they continue to be a one-size-fits-all system coach? <sighs> I have to imagine that the answer to that is yes. Um, we've had two seasons now where we've had wild success with the system. Again, credit to the guy. He can build a system with the roster that he has at hand. Um, and I think it's so dumb. I, I continue to put a lot of value on this quote just because it was the only game I did media for. And so I'm like, oh, this is my, <laughs> my insight. But when he said that 80% of the game is just the players free-forming it, that's like a, a pretty extreme laissez-faire approach to coaching. And I think that's a hard, assuming he wasn't totally BSing, which he might've been, but assuming there's a kernel of truth there, that's a very hard strategic approach to kind of break free from if you think it brings results. And so I believe he will continue to be a one size fits all. He'll put in his system and that's going to be the principle around which this team plays, especially in the regular season, we, the question within that question is, will he continue to be one in the course of a game or over the course of like a month or two? Because if it's, we come back, he comes together, he evaluates the roster. Um, I, I would agree with Kyle that there is a certain level of um, issue with the players that we could talk about Giannis just charging into dudes all the time. Part of that is what he's asked to do, but part of it is he's just not, there are parts of his game where he's just not crisp enough and that's an issue. But I, I think the main question is, I think he will be a one-size-fits-all. Will he then be more hands-on within a game? Or if he's not going to be hands-on, is he going to empower his assistants or somebody to be more hands-on within a game? Because I think we've seen now two years in a row just letting the players work it out. And then once you get to the playoffs, you try to take more of a rein on what's happening within the game. That That's just not going to cut it. We have had two years now. Um, he's not used to it. They're not used to it. There needs to be a middle ground. The question is, will he get there? I'm not sure. The hopefully getting trounced twice uh, in a row now with the best player in the, in, on the entire planet 
put some sense into him. But this is six seasons now where he was the head coach, and it's been a lot of playoff failures, like a lot. So given that track history, I don't feel super confident. Um, this is a different situation than Atlanta, but if we're going off of history at all uh, as a guide for the future, I'm not confident, which, again, that brings us around to is he the answer as the coach, but that's a question for another podcast probably. Yeah, the the player, most of 80% of it is the players. It was really fascinating to me. I, I mean, one of the big issues with that is the fact that if 80% of it is the players – you know, half the time these players are just sitting around waiting to shoot a three pointer, right? Mm -hmm. They're not like, they're not doing like the fun free motion offense that like we kind of see in Dallas or like we definitely saw in Dallas a couple years ago where they had that crazy good offense and then they traded for Rondo and it all went to crap. But I mean, the issue is that like, if you're playing free motion, most of the time it's like Giannis drives and kicks out and like, Oh yeah, that's, I mean, that's cool, but it's not like an intricate bunch of parts, uh, you know, all worrying together at one time. I think sometimes also we see it get mucked up a little bit. Like you'll see, you'll see George Hill just like randomly in the dunker spot. You don't see a lot of like other Bucks guards down there. And I think part of that is, is him like trying to maybe play a little more free motion or him trying to find something else to squeak out of the system as opposed to being like, I'm just going to sit in the blue square and when you pass me the ball, I'll either shoot it, I'll pump fake and drive, or I'll pass it to a dude in the corner. Um, it would be it'd be interesting to see more of that. I think we'll talk about that in the next question. But I, I do think he will continue to be a one-size-fits-all system coach. Something I want to bring up, actually, about Bud before we go to the next question is, how do you guys think he's doing in terms of development? This was like a huge thing coming out of Atlanta, right? Like, the players take their vitamins. And it was like he would always turn these random – wings into like pretty decent players but I, I i don't know how are you guys feeling about how that is going translating into in milwaukee what do you think kyle i go back and forth because his system does get more out of his players than it might like a guy like pat Connaughton, for example mm -hmm. i think bud got more out of pat Connaughton than any other coach would have but at the same time you know, we are expecting someone like Sterling Brown to really take that next step, and Sterling Brown has it. Maybe Dante takes that next step. And that's the only, those are the only two guys that I look at and say, can they get significantly better? And for one of them, it's a no in Sterling Brown. And the other one in Dante, it's still a to be determined because this was really the first full season we got of Dante. So I don't know if he necessarily improved or developed any players just because a lot of the players that Milwaukee have have either hit their peak or passed their peak, or it's someone like Giannis who's so good and continuously improves that no matter who is coaching, he was he was going to get better regardless. So it's kind of tough. I think Chris Middleton has definitely benefited from Budenholzer being there, um, but in terms of pure development, I would say no. No one has really developed in the way that we had hoped when Budenholzer first arrived. Like there's no Damari Carroll. There's no you know, I don't think Torian Prince was there, but you know, there's no guy like that. I would agree with that, but I would counter by saying that the expectations and the goals of this Bucks team when he came in are radically different from what those Hawks teams were. Those Hawks teams were like the definition of amalgamation of like random players and just try to make it work. And so that lent itself to his, again, credit, he creates a system based on the roster and he's able to get 
a lot out of those guys. He got whatever, like the 80 all-stars that one season. Where the, <laughs> like, you know, it, it works. But the issue is when you have a really established top three, which is what we had with Chris, with Giannis, with Eric, um, Brooke was, he, I mean, he got a lot out of Brooke, for example. And so we can say he's developed or he's gotten good mileage out of guys. The issue is we can't afford, or the perception is we can't afford to be trying to focus on these other guys like Sterling Brown, like DJ. And they're not guys that he brought in necessarily. Dante is the only exception. And I think up until the playoffs this year, we could definitely point at Dante and said, this is, this was a massive leap forward for him because it went from totally lost rookie season to pretty good sophomore season to really push in our hopes. Be like, let's see, maybe he'll, God only knows what he can turn into. And so hard to establish our goals are so different from that Hawks team, especially with how long he was in charge there. Um, so you're right that he's not developing guys, but I'm not sure if that's his job right now for good or for ill. Yeah, it's a really good point. The next question is from Older's order as well. How will Bud try to beat the wall this coming year? This is that sort of like in-depth X's and O strategy stuff that Older's order will probably know better than us, but do you guys have any just like off the bat things that you might be looking for next year from Bud? I think it's my, tough because my, I don't know what the roster is. I Until we know what the roster is going to be, it's kind of tough to know. Because if you get someone like Chris Paul, do you do more pick and roll with Chris Paul and Giannis or even Middleton and Chris Paul? Like That's kind of the question of what the roster is going to be because outside of Giannis, Chris, and Brooke, I don't – and George Hill maybe, not even – like besides those three players, I don't know – I'll throw Dante in as well. Like, I just don't know who's still going to be on this team next year. So we could see a significantly different roster, and maybe that leads to Gunnholzer coming up with an offensive strategy to counter the wall. So I think that's kind of the tough thing to know because we don't know who's going to be there next year to simply um, to simply give us scheme. The the thing that I would point to is it all comes down to Giannis, right? Why does the wall happen? Because Giannis exists. And partially it's also because Eric Bledsoe exists and is an awful three-point shooter for a point guard. But for the most part, it exists because Giannis. So what's the solution there? Like Kyle said, we don't know about the roster. You need to start getting more creative with Giannis. I think there were times throughout the season where he was showing post moves. He was showing that like baseline fadeaway, like the dirt jumper. There were moves. We've seen it. It doesn't have to be totally bull bullheaded rushing or like wait, clear out the five guys, put Giannis at the top key and hope he can make something happen. Yes, get the ball in his hands in transition, but we saw in the playoffs, I mean, I think like, um, I don't know who it was who tweeted, but there was like a sequence where like all five Miami Heat players in transition, they just sprinted back and they all focused on Giannis just to stop his head of steam. If teams are able to do that in the playoffs, fine. Okay, they're going to be able to execute that at a higher level. But then you need to think about get the ball out of Giannis' hands immediately. I think like D. Maniad, he talked about the fact that it takes the Bucks forever to set up any sort of sequence, any sort of play. Maybe put Giannis, try and get him into the post. It, part of the difficulty is we don't have any guys who can do entry passes all that well, so you can't really dominate there. But you have personnel that doesn't have to be five out necessarily. And so my solution to it would have to go back to Giannis because he's the one who creates the wall by his sheer existence put him down low, encourage him to have more of a bevy of moves because we've seen him do it. But I wonder how much of it is Budenholzer slash Giannis coming back to, let's just play to your strengths when he starts getting tight in the playoffs. I would love to see some different looks. And it, 
to their credit, in the regular season, we saw that to a certain extent. I just want to see more of that. And I think that's going to be the main solution, barring, like Kyle said, a Chris Paul, a dominant on-ball guard, or a really sh- big shakeup in the roster that totally changes the system that you play with. Yeah, I would agree. You guys both make really good points. I, a lot of people have said it using Giannis. Maybe if you run a little more pick and roll using Giannis as the screener, although Miami was did a pretty decent job of, of just collapsing on that as the series went on. Mm-hmm. But that was something that still I think is worth exploring a little more. Um, I think getting getting Giannis the ball either – getting honest the ball is he's like either at that free throw line or at the nail, just a couple different spots where he can operate from where I feel like when he's at the top of the arc and he has the ball, he feels like, all right, well, I gotta, I gotta just go. Mm-hmm. I gotta just drive right now. Yeah. And um, I think just getting him a couple, just getting him the ball in a couple different places where he can survey, he can do the Jason kid stand on a chair. Look how tall this guy is. He can sort of survey the floor, but I think using him in like, obviously they're not going to, Teams don't really respect his three-point shot, obviously, like they do Nikola Jokic. But like trying to use him as like if he is in there as a big, trying to use him a little bit more as a passer. I think that's something he needs to improve upon. He's certainly not at Jokic's level. I wouldn't say he's even close. But um, I think just trying to get him the ball in a couple different places because I think you know just trying to find opportunities for other players to cut too. I think Chris is Chris's game is kind of calcifying now into like a dude who's just gonna. He's like, I don't know. I mean, he, he's really good at what he does. I think he's a good good playmaker and everything, but he can also be like the the Michael Beasley, like, all right, well, nothing's happening. I'm just going to make something happen right here and make a crazy shot. Um, so I don't know. Those are just a couple of examples uh, that I was thinking of. There are a lot of possibilities. I think looking from the outside end, it again ties back to the fact that we have these principles. I, as much as I love the Chris Tough Shot Express, I'm, that's really not an ideal shot. shot. <laughs> And during a playoff series, I don't know. This is a lot of different questions. It feels like there's a lot of possibilities. These are NBA players at the end of the day. You can argue that guys like Wes or Hill or Corver, I mean, like they're pretty one dimensional. Hill's a little bit more, but like Wes or Corver or whoever, they're pretty one dimensional on offense. But that you should be able to get more out of these guys. Like they sh- they should be able to do more. They're here. They're in the NBA, right? And maybe that's like really reductive of me, but it just feels like we are playing beyond our potential because we play a straightforward system of offense and defense in a certain way too. Like it's very effective, but straightforward, but like we're not getting enough on it. It's like, I'm <laughs> just a weird team. I don't even know the, the playoff losses make everything so difficult. And so it feels like there should be room for improvement still. And I think the roster has the capability of doing that, but it, I don't know. We just have to take advantage of it. And we haven't yet. It's weird. All right. We're going to move on to stuff and we're going to talk about the roster. Now we're going to talk about the roster. And this, this question is from Riley Feldman. Who was on your must keep could go and must leave list for the roster. Uh, Riley, why don't you start us off since you submitted the question? So my keep list, I wrote this all up player by player. And there was a lot of players that I forgot who was on the roster. So because they don't <laughs> play at all in the, in the playoffs. So that made it difficult, but my must keep list. Giannis, obviously, um, Chris, because I think it would be hard to find an upgrade and ain't nobody touching that contract. Uh, I don't think he's a good player, but I'm not sure if anybody's going to look at that and be like, ah, we'll go for that. And then my third keep is Thanasis. Uh, I thought so, <laughs> I like put this out there in the comments of this article, asked for questions. People were like, yeah, but what if another team like really wants to give Thanasis uh, playing time? 
the Nasus was playing in Europe for years and years. If there was another team that wanted to give them playing time, uh, they, they had their opportunity already. <laughs> but you can't piss Giannis off, so the Nasus is untouchable. Uh, the goodbye, must see a goodbye. Uh, to me, it's Sterling, Pat, Marvin's retired, so that's that. Corver, I don't want nothing. I didn't want him at all when we first got him. I don't want them with him again. Uh, Ursan, I guess, because he's just uh, he's old. Uh, <laughs> and Wes, I think he's going to be gone because he's only supposed to make like $2 million if he picks up his player option. I have to imagine there's another team that would pay him more for that. And everybody else, whether it be Eric Brook, Dante, DJ's on the block, he's probably going to be a key because nobody's touching that contract either. Um, Robin and uh, yeah, so I think Thanasis, Chris, Giannis are your keeps. Everybody else is like pretty much up in the air from my, from my perspective, at least. Yeah, for me, it's simply Giannis is the only one you keep. If you can find a way to upgrade on Chris Milton, you do it. I, I kind of looked at it. I don't know if it was Bill Simmons, but someone had this thing where if someone picks up the phone and calls and asks about a player. How likely are you to at least entertain the offer or hang up? And I think Giannis is the only one that you pick up the phone and they say, hey, we want Giannis, you immediately hang up. You don't discuss it. So Giannis is the only keep. I, I want to have a second tier because, like, Chris is definitely in the – ideally you keep, but if you can significantly upgrade, you do it. So otherwise, everyone else <laughs> – Brooke could go – I, I'd be indifferent either way. I think what he brings is very important to the Bucks in this current scheme. And I think he's got the ability to change games on the defensive end. So I would say Brooke and Dante are in the could go along with Middleton. And then everyone else is got to go. Um, yeah, I, I think it just comes down to, you know, Sterling Brown, he's going to be a restricted free agent unless you bring him in on a very low contract. No point in keeping him around. DJ Wilson he's going to be gone next year if you have to cut bay with it so be it if you can use him as a tr- as part of throwing for a trade do it same with ursan he's only going to make seven million this next year if you can find someone to take that on great otherwise cut bait with it like there's just a lot of players that you simply just have to cut bait with because running it back is not going to work um so you just pretty much have to stand pat with Giannis. you probably are standing pat with chris not because it's very hard to find a replacement that's going to be better with him. And you stay in Palace Brook because what he brings to the system and this team is too invaluable. And unless you find someone that can do the exact same thing at a significantly lower cost, I don't think that's going to happen. Everyone else can go. I, 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 maybe I was too, too soft here. I only have three people on my must leave list. I was like, Marvin, well, you retired. Yeah, you got to go. I'm out on Kyle Corver. So I'm out on Kyle Korver. Ursan's got to go because of his contract. I don't want to pay him seven mil next year. Almost yep. everyone else I had could go. The only must keep I had, like you, Kyle, was Giannis. I I don't know. I flirted with having Brooke in the must keep. Um, felt a little strong, probably. Uh, I know old resorter in the Bruhu comments made an interesting suggestion about is it time to sell high on Brooke? I don't know. I guess he he. Start, he Obviously, the system works really well. If we switch from the zone drop, there's going to be a lot of questions about his defensive, um, you know, how feasible he can be defensively. But I don't know. There's a part of me that's like, all right, we had three three dudes be good in the playoffs. Brooke Lopez was one of them, like consistently over the last two years. I mean, he he was he was much more iffy last year, but this year especially, it's like, well, Brooke 
Brooke might be more reliable right now than giving the ball to Giannis. Um, obviously, you hope that's not the case in the future, but I don't know. I mean, I think it's unless you can find like a really good upgrade over him, I I, I kind of don't mind going to battle with him. And I think you need at least one big man. I mean, the Clippers, the Clippers still have like Zubach or whatever. The Lakers are running out like McGee and Dwight Howard. Like I'm pretty okay with Brooke at around 12 million for the next couple of years, as long as his play doesn't fall off. But I, I'm kind of okay with him there. Everyone else I had as 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 could go. I didn't feel super strongly. Um, where'd you guys have Cam Reynolds? Could go. Obviously, <laughs> offer him the MLE. You give him the MLE for sure. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, all right. Yeah. Okay. It's 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 so tough. This is everything with this roster where it's like we failed. That's that's the end of the day. And like, really, if you want to get extreme, the only untouchable should be Giannis because you're not getting another talent like him. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of different guys. It, it ties back into like the system thing where like, could you find somebody? I wrote down for uh, Brook replacements, um, the ghost of John Henson before we traded him because he was nailing those threes, maybe even at a higher rate than Brook, for example. Like, I don't know. Part of the difficulty is finding who you would replace him with. That's right, Adam. Um, and, and that's going to be a problem with a lot of the roster because like, if you try to get rid of Eric and it, I mean, the only upgrade there is going to come through trade because the free agents for point guards pretty much suck. Like it's just, it's hard to find replacements. And so a lot of them are could goes, but I doubt they will go. Yeah, that's fair. All right. The next one is from R983. This was a fun exercise, actually. Which, which backcourts in the league would you take over ours? Not long-term value, just in the playoffs next year. Who did, uh, who did you, who did you have Kyle? In the East, um, Boston, Miami, Toronto, Brooklyn. I, you can't trust Eric Bledsoe, and because of that, it torpedoes any chance of maybe George Hill can salvage it, maybe Dante salvages it, maybe Wes is, Wes is a good defender, but if Bledsoe is going to be a disaster, then you're pretty much looking at seventh or eighth possibly of a backcourt um yeah so everyone but orlando i and even that i'm thinking maybe orlando wouldn't have been the worst philly would not okay philly philly is the only team i can confidently say their backcourt i would trust less than milwaukee everyone else i can at least talk myself into it because orlando dj augustine he's a good shooter off the dribble he's someone that can run a pick and roll he can get hot. Terrence Ross, as we've seen, is a Bucks killer. Sure, why not? Markel Fultz is interesting. I want to see him succeed as well. Brooklyn's got guys like Spencer Dinwiddie and Karis LeVert. I don't know if they count as guards, but I'm saying it is. They are. Joe Harris is a great shooter. You know what Miami can do. So, yep, we're throwing Miami there. You know Boston can do as annoying as Marcus Smart is. He does what he needs to in the playoffs. Yeah, I would say just Philly's the only one that I feel least confident on the Eastern Conference playoff teams, which is an indictment of how bad Bledsoe has been and how little you can trust Bledsoe. Who do you have the, in the East, Riley? So 
went through this whole exercise. Uh, part of the issue is that I don't watch nearly as much other non-Bucks basketball as uh, I used to. So a lot of us is just like shot in the dark, just cursory <laughs> looking at the per game <laughs> numbers. But uh, so I have Toronto. I, this is, so this whole exercise, I went off the assumption that you could like take these guys moving forward here because like the Fred Van Vliet contract situation, there's a lot of different things that are kind of up the air. But if you just take them from this year and move them forward here. Um, so I took Toronto, I took Boston, I took, I did take Indiana, um, just because I think uh, they, you, you're forced to do a different look there. Um, Miami, yep. Uh, Brooklyn, yes, even though Kyrie's uh, insane, but I think you could hopefully make that work. Um, I did not do Orlando. I did not do Philly. I did not do Charlotte. I chose Washington because uh, everybody's trying to get Beal and I think the ghost of John Wall. I mean, you're, you want to talk about <laughs> shaking the dice and rolling. I'm seeing what happens. <laughs> That's the ultimate gamble, but who knows? Um, I did not take Sh- Chicago is kind of a question mark because I think Levine, Sadoransky, they're good players and who knows about Kobe White. That's kind of a question. Um, New York, no. Detroit, I don't really want to deal with the continuing, the living ghost of Derrick Rose. Um, Atlanta, I think having Trey Young and Porter would be interesting. I think Trey would be awful on defense, but maybe you're able to make up for that. Um, And I did not go for Cleveland. So I ended up picking up seven of the 14 other teams. So 50% of the East's uh, backcourt, I would take over ours. And a lot of the ones they didn't take were the uh, seller-dweller bad East teams. So, uh, yeah. It's not good. It's you not went great. much more in depth than I did. I just went based on. I just went playoff teams. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought just looking through. I, it's not great. A lot of the other, but at least we have the other ones you can convince yourself like either potential or it's like such a stylistic shift that maybe that's enough to break the issues that we've had these past two years. And if we're going to have the one size fit all system, let's just do a totally different system. And having completely different personnel would accomplish that. So that was kind of my. Um, my perspective on it. Yeah, I was I, I was closer to Riley. Um, I the only teams I I didn't want were Orlando, Cleveland, Detroit, New York, and Charlotte. But I I sure thought about Charlotte. They were on the list last night when I made it, and I shifted them off this morning once I looked at that. Um, scary I include- Terry, you don't want, you don't believe in Scary Terry. <laughs> Uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, I might. Graham would be worth a shot, but yeah, Gary yeah. kind of takes that out. Yeah. In terms of, I, I, I'm with you guys on the playoff teams. In terms of non-playoff teams, I had Washington. I had Atlanta. Um, even with Trey Young's defense, just I. And then I also had Chicago. Again, could be kind of iffy in the playoffs. I, in the even the playoffs, they might actually just fall apart and really suck. But I could see an argument. I I did go Philly. If we get Ben Simmons, he's basically like if he's basically Eric Bledsoe. I, I mean, I tall Eric Bledsoe. Yeah, <laughs> but he but he can he can kind of make stuff at the rim. I mean, he can pass better than Eric Bledsoe. I did not consider Ben Simmons a point guard, so that's why I did not include Philly. Okay, all right, that's fair. Well, in that case, please no. I don't need them. <laughs> I don't need anyone on that roster then. But if we include Ben Simmons, I'd take that. Um, okay, what about the West? Oh wait, we had to look out west. Oh crap! Oh I didn't well, okay. Hold on. Right. Let me well, start. I mean, with we the... can. Let me think. Okay, Let me... Out west. I have my west list. I'll give it to you guys. Okay. 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 Memphis. I would take okay. John Morant. Portland. Mm-hmm. OKC. Mm-hmm. Yep. Houston. 
And that Westbrook, I mean, again, it's like Eric Bledsoe just on roids. It's just like the next level. It's it's like having short Giannis. It would be having Giannis and short Giannis on the team, which maybe that would work out. But don't we get don't we get James Harden? Yeah, I mean that that maybe as much as everybody dislikes James Harden, I think he would be an excellent pairing with Giannis. Like any sort of like decent guard on ball who has three levels of offense, I think that would be an awesome pairing with Giannis. So that that might be worthwhile. Yeah, James Harden is good, but I'm not taking Westbrook just to take James Harden. <laughs> okay, all right. Denver, I have Denver. I would take Denver. Mm-hmm. Utah, I would take Utah. Yeah. Clippers. Yep. Yeah. That was one I, I I wasn't quite sure. Okay. I have to go look at their roster real quick. They have like Pat Bev. They have Shamit. Mm-hmm. They have... Mm-hmm. Um, Don't they have Lou Williams? Lou Will- they do have Lou Williams. That was Lou that Will. was it. That yeah. was the one that put me over the top. Good call. Um, Dallas. Yep. Yeah. I was, yeah. Okay. So the the Lakers. I counted LeBron as a point guard here. Uh, if we're not counting him, I don't think I want it. He's listed as a point guard on Basketball yeah. Reference. <laughs> I'm not counting as a point guard, so I'll go. With <laughs> okay. Yeah. Kings. Yep. Yeah. With uh, Fox and is Bogdanovich technically their their other backcourt guy? Uh, I'm not going to look at basketball reference, but yes, I'm pretty sure Buddy Heald would be the other backcourt guy. I'd take Buddy Heald too. Yeah, I'd probably go yeah. on that. All right. What about I have Phoenix as a yes as well. Yep. yep. Yeah, Devin Booker would be. I, I think Booker he would be a really interesting guy. I have Golden State as a yes. Yeah, yeah. Steph Curry <laughs> over the hill. <laughs> I okay, and then I have I I have the Pelicans as a yes. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. I think there's so many other teams. I, I think looking through and what's obvious in this is like we gambled so much with the Eric Bledsoe thing. I think everybody's just just so sick of Eric. Nothing personal, <laughs> Eric. I think I'm sure you're a good guy. It's nothing personal. It's just three years in a row now. It's hard to have that happen to your point guard over and over again. So I'm willing to gamble with like any different type of starting point guard um as long as it's a guy i'm not even like all that strong like he has to be an excellent three-point shooter i just want somebody who's able to do a little bit more on the ball because right now eric bledsoe's like either take a three-pointer two seconds into a possession which is uh he's over 300 on since he started with the bucks or it's like just charge the hoop he's like an okay-ish playmaker but he not excellent um which is fine and that's just kind of his style, but just any different type of point guard. And then Wes is fine, very limited role, but it would be cool if you could get something more than like guy who is good and very limited role. And so that's the experiment is going through. There's a lot of guys who you could at least squint and be like, oh, if you had him with the Bucks, maybe he'd be able to bring a little bit more. Maybe it'd be, you'd have a wider range of possibilities in the playoffs where we've seen guys go into limited role and that is not good enough for us. Yeah, I'm going. I'm looking at the teams in the West, and it's like Lakers, no, Clippers, yes, Rockets, yes, Rockets, no, sorry, Nuggets, yes, Thunder, yes, Jazz. Pretty much everyone on the West besides the Lakers and the Timberwolves and the Spurs, I would pretty much go with yes, I would take their backcourt, which I mean, Eric Bledsoe's defense, really, really great. Something that could be handy come playoff time, especially when you play a team like Houston and you can put Eric Bledsoe on. James Harden and have some success on it. But kind of like what Riley was saying, just someone that can do something off the ball, which is why, you know, someone like Ricky Rubio, where 
he's a good enough passer and playmaker that it can at least help the other players. It It's just that lack of Eric Bledsoe trust and also being very dependent on George Hill makes things a little bit too difficult for me to kind of properly judge what you want out of a point guard. Because I think if George Hill was even four years younger, I don't think we would have any concerns with that. We would say he should be starting. We would, I mean, we still might think that George Hill should be starting um, just because of how his game might get better. But it's just really tough. And when you had, we had the expectation of Eric Bledsoe to not be a disaster in the playoffs. And it looked like Bledsoe might have been okay. And then games four and five happened in which he was a disaster. And it kind of soured that mood. I think if Bledsoe had a terrible performance in games one and two, and then turned it around in games three, four, and five, we might have a slightly different tone with it. But just that game five left such a sour taste in our mouth that I, and I think with recent memory as well, it's just going to be too hard to shake. And, I think that's why Milwaukee wants to take that next level, then they have to replace him. Following up on that, totally unrelated. I think I don't see any other Dante questions. I don't know if Dante's going to be a buck next year, guys. I don't know if that's going to be the case, if he's going to be trade filler. So I'm not sure if we want to do one final Dante's Inferno just in case. Uh, and if we do, Adam, want to cede the floor to you. Are you in on Dante still? Are you out? What What are our feelings on Dante? Because when I look at our three, our, our the four point guards that R983 put on there, Bledsoe out, Hill I'm okay with, Wes I'm indifferent to, Dante is the question mark. How do we feel about Dante? I think I can be a professional basketball player. How do we feel about Dante? I think you know the answer to that. (laughs) I wasn't sure if the playoffs uh, threw your confidence at all. It's good to know that it didn't. Uh, I mean, it was tough when he sucked uh, for most (laughs) of the playoffs. (laughs) But, I mean... Whatever you want to say, man, about blood or about sorry about Dante, like very clearly something he was clearly like working through something or something had him spooked because like the last two games, games four and five, all of a sudden he just looked like Dante again, which just mm-hmm. it doesn't really make much sense to me that all of a sudden he just looks a lot more like himself. Maybe he just lost confidence in, in himself. You know, whatever his his shot falling certainly made a difference. But I mean, whatever you want to say about the guy. Uh, he offers like he offered certainly like an offensive compliment in game five. He was one of the few players who was actually offering some sort of offense in game five. And the, the dude was insane running around screens on Duncan Robinson. Like he was in his shirt the entire time. And I understand he might get traded and that's totally fine. Kind of would stink because he's one of the few young players. And like, that's just something that's, this roster lacks. That's like kind of fun to root for is like, Oh, there's this young guy who could maybe improve. And we just don't really have many of those. Um, So I don't know. I mean, I was very happy that he stepped up. It certainly helps the, you know, I'm definitely putting too much stock in like just two, two games out of eight or whatever that he, he sucked for the rest of them. But uh, I don't know. I was glad to see him play really well for those last two. I think it will give the front office a little bit of um, put their minds at ease a little bit heading into the off season. And if they do want to trade him, I mean, I, he, a lot more of his stuff this year was good than bad, which is really, really promising for someone who basically lost. And this was basically his rookie year for all intents and purposes since he lost last year. So, 
Yeah, I would love to keep Dante. I think Dante is one of the few players that you can look and say, I feel good about them moving forward and improving. But I also think in order to make any big trade, you know, like a Chris Paul, like a Drew Holiday, if you want to make that significant upgrade on Bledsoe, you have to throw in Dante as well, which is kind of the problem. Um, so I, yeah, if Dante stays next year, I'll be excited. But I also understand that in order to upgrade the point guard position, you probably have to throw Dante in as a trade piece as well. It would be hard. It, he's one of the few guys in the roster who can do stuff. And really that's been his calling card since he became an <laughs> NBA player. It, it was an honor watching him do stuff all year. And he's like one of two guys on the roster who can do stuff. So yes, I would agree. It would be great to keep him just for, who knows, maybe maybe uh, another year he'll kind of put it more together and we will have less of uh, growing pains in the playoffs. But you're right, bringing it back to the fact that this, this is essentially his rookie season, his first experience in the playoffs. And it was like a totally out of left field version of the playoffs to on top of everything. So uh, I'm also somewhat high on Dante. I'm not sure if I'm like, can't trade him. There was <laughs> this dude's value whipsawed. <laughs> yeah, he, his value whipsawed all year long. He'd have like two good weeks and everyone's like, he might be the third star we're looking for. <laughs> and, like, and then after the playoffs, like, yeah, we might have to trade him. So he's definitely, it's been a roller coaster with Dante, which is all you can ask for in a young player. It's just a little bit of hope, some roller coaster action, get your emotions all over the place. It's good stuff. Okay, before we move on, we're going to go to Giannis after this. But just real briefly, I think we need to do – I wasn't quite sure where we land. Are you guys – I I can't do Eric Bledsoe anymore. Are you like, we need, he needs to leave? Like, we need to trade him. We can't really hold him anymore. I can't remember exactly where he fell on your could-go or, like, must-leaves. If Milwaukee wants to significantly – like, seriously challenge for a title and make a convincing case to Giannis that they can do it, they cannot keep Eric Bledsoe. If Giannis has already said I'm leaving and you just resign yourself to the fact that you sit with Eric Bledsoe's contract and rebuild around it in spite of it, then fine. But I'm in the, if you got it, I will take a worse player that might be able to do a little bit more offensively than to keep Eric Bledsoe. I'm probably on the, we have to move on from Eric uh, side, I'm willing to give the front office time to a valley because there's going to be a lot that's in flux between like the draft and free agency and all that sort of stuff. So if he's still on the roster at the start of the next season, I'm not going to lose my mind. But I hope, I, I really do hope they have some sort of other option. I'm not sure if that's going to be Chris Paul. I'm not sure still how I feel about Chris Paul being an option, but I think I'm a, on a must leave, but you don't have to take like the first deal. I don't know. It's, it's tough. We've seen three years now. We've had three playoff series, critical ones where he just, he didn't show up one way or another. That's a hard track record to overlook. And the fact that he's pretty one dimensional on offense is that's his defense is good, but I think you, you could probably find ways given the fact he have the defensive player of the year and other guys who are really good on defense to kind of hopefully help compensate for that. So that's kind of where I'm at. Okay. Yeah, I think I think after three years of disappointment, it's it's probably the team feels like they have to move on. It is kind of a I've always kind of liked Derek Bledsoe. He seems like a really I don't know, seems like a really decent guy. He really seems to like Milwaukee and a little less for the pressure. He's a dude who gets nervous for the first several minutes of every game, which is you you could say is a really bad trait, but I find to be a little bit endearing. Uh, he worked his butt off in game five. I mean, he, he got a lot of steals, a lot of deflections uh, on the defensive end of the floor. I mean, he was doing some really good stuff there, but it was just completely offset by 
just an absolutely horrific offensive performance. I mean, when you miss when you miss point blank shots, you've been missing them far too many times in the playoffs. It's just there's only so many times I bet Horst can see that before he's like, whatever hair I have left, just like rip it out because uh, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're in agreement. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Giannis. I thought this was a good question. This is from Aloth. Hope I said that right. If you're Giannis and replay these last two years exits in your head, what do you try to improve most in your game in order to get your team to the finals next year? What do you what what do you what do you have on your list, Kyle? I don't know how you can do this, but improving as a passer would I think open a lot of things up for him because then I think that's one thing that people that want to compare Giannis and LeBron, LeBron's passing is at such a high level. If he can make any pass on the court, Giannis cannot make any pass on the, around the court. So I'd say improving your passing slash decision-making or timing on the passes. Um, otherwise work on those post moves and kind of like what Riley said, we saw that he could do that kind of baseline jump shot, that Dirk shot almost. We've seen him do, you know, a little baby hook from the post. I think working on that would help because then you don't have to take the ball at the top of the key, run at someone and either spin, Eurocept, whatever. And also just gives you another way and you get that ball at the post and you can make those passes. So I think improving, improving slash actually utilizing a post move skill set and passing ability would be the two things I would try and improve on the most. I think that if teams are going to double you, you can at least try and find a way to find open shooters. My two things would be um, slow down. I want to see him slow down. I think it's very easy for him. I think this ties into the decision making, but I think it's, and I understand why this is the case because he's seven feet tall, like 240 pounds and a total force of nature. I want to see him slow down during the regular season, whether that be, you know, within a possession, whether or not that be transition looks, that's kind of tough to give up. But if you don't have the numbers, I want to see him be willing to kind of like slow it down, you know, pass the ball out, find a different position. Part of that comes on uh, Budenholzer as well, but I want to see him slow down. The other thing is, which is he's tried to fix it every year he's been in the league, uh, not sucking at free throws would be great. Uh, I don't know. I think that's pretty much a lost cause that in the three pointer, I, I really do. I want him to stop shooting three pointers. I think it, it, if he wants to do it in the regular season, fine. Um, at this point, it's not a shot. Anybody should respect. If I was an opponent, I'd be like, it, it's honestly, it comes down to the, everybody disrespect him. That should continue. Why would I want to do anything different? If, if he's the guy who shoots three or six on like an occasional game, Great, wonderful. At least he didn't like try to go inside or whatever. So I would say, slow it down. Uh, stop trying to use your physicality to just like run dudes over. Um, and then the free throw shooting because I think he's going to still end up going to the line a lot. Um, it, both of those are really tough to like improve in an off season. I would assume it would be amazing if he came and he was like an eighty percent free throw shooter. I don't see that happening. Um, but those would be my two targets. Whether or not he can fix them, we're not sure. He can even be a low 70% free throw shooter, and that would significantly improve Milwaukee's odds. And you gain three, four points if he is even a 71% free throw shooter. I agree. Shooting threes is pointless. I think people overvalue that three-point shot. And for someone like Giannis, it, it's broken. It's done. It's broken. It was dead. The second kid, the kid came in and said, don't shoot threes. That's when it was going to be gone. And unless 
he gets a whole new elbow and shooting mechanic, which I highly doubt is going to happen. There's no point in shooting threes. Make your free throws, and you can make up those points for threes. And I think in addition to that, you're adding too much for him to kind of consider on. Play to the guy's strengths. He's not a three-point shooter anymore, if he ever was. That's fine. That that Don't put the pressure on him to be like, well, the reason why we suck is because you can't make threes. That's not, That should not be the case. Play to his strengths. And if his strengths are all the physicality, that's fine. But then you can do other things. Like I said, slowing things down. Don't force his decision-making to be tested by the fact that he has to run into four guys. And then when he gets swallowed up, that's when he kicks out. Find other ways to utilize him that isn't necessarily, you need to change this complete mechanical thing because we've done that for year after year after year that is not working. He is a two-time MVP. We'll get to the next question. Why not? He'll three-peat. He has the talent. You have to find better ways to utilize that. And that's not necessarily, let's do this one thing that's nobody's going to respect anyhow next season. And it's probably not going to be changed nearly enough to make enough of an impact to get you to the finals, for example. I think you both make really good points. I really like the slow down, Riley. I think that's a really, really smart one um, because someone made a really good point that it's really one of his signature move, the spin move. It's really hard to play make out of a spin move. It's just such, it's such a fast thing. It's like hard to, I don't know if you ever spun around once, like, can you imagine then like finding someone out of that? Like with a pinpoint pass, I, I, I don't know. God, I mean, he's a great, God knows he's a much better athlete than, um, you know, my pinky toe is, but like, I don't know. The passing was the other thing I, I, I noted for him. I think his passing I don't know how, like you said, Kyle, I don't know how you improve on that. Maybe it's just like you put, put people in the corner and it's like, all right, get it. He, he just needs to know like where people's shooting pockets are too. Like being able to find those pinpoint, which theoretically, like he should be able to do like these people are just sitting in blue squares. Like he should know who's in the square. He should know where to give them, like give them their pass. I think that's something that you actually could improve upon. Obviously the free throws as well. Um, maybe even just like, I, I miss seeing, maybe he doesn't have to improve on these, but I miss seeing some of the post moves just a little, like he would have, he used to have that drop step move that people probably know now, but like he would have that drop step move a couple years ago that like would just absolutely destroy people. And then he, if he, if that didn't work, he would just turn around and like, if they got fooled on it, he would turn around and dunk it. So I don't know, just like, I, I like, I like those ideas of kind of moving away from being like, if he gets the three, what if it, well, just wait till he gets the three point shot. Well, it's been a long time. I, you know, I know some players get it later on, but I don't know if they will. So I'd like to see Giannis do some of those things. Um, all right. Next question. Does Giannis three-peat as MVP? I feel like we all know the answer to this, but I'm curious more broadly about your your ideas of, do you think Giannis can win another MVP if he doesn't win another champ? if he doesn't win a championship? For good or for ill... Um, there is a lot about the MVP award that is like narrative based. And right now it's not necessarily partially it is his fault because he didn't play well against Miami. And there were times against Toronto where like he struggled. Um, it, 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 the narrative is being written for him. And so he could three Pete as an MVP. I think that's totally within the realm of possibility. They could come back. They could put even more on his shoulders. Like that would be tough to, imagine but i could see a world where teams care even less about playing the bucks during the regular seasons like ah we'll just we'll get him next time or we'll get him in the playoffs whatever it is and he just goes completely off there's a possibility he could do it i'm not sure if 
he will because there might be a bit of a bias against him. If there's anybody else who has like a good-ish season, they might end up getting enough like narrative push. And I don't think it's necessary. It's It'd be cool. It'd be great. But I want the team to have different focuses that isn't necessarily like the Giannis MVP. So if that comes at the cost of wins and losses for the team, which costs his overall narrative, that's fine by me. Um, if his numbers go down because he's trying to do different things and isn't as go, 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 score as much as you can, um, I'm okay with that as well. Uh, I, he'll have a case just because of who he is, but um, I don't think that should be the goal necessarily, if that makes sense, which is weird to say about an MVP, but uh, he could do it. I just don't have any value in it. Yeah, I thought of this, and could he three-peak? Sure. Like Riley said, not out of the realm of possibility. But as we've seen with LeBron James, you can be the best player in the league and not win MVP. And the best case was Derrick Rose when he won his MVP. LeBron was still significantly better, but Derrick Rose took this team, made him a number one seed, and got it. And I can see that happening for someone like Luka Doncic. I can see that happening for LeBron even next year. Um, I can see it with Jason Tatum. Like I can just see a bunch of other guys make that next step team-wise in which then it's going to be, okay, well, we've already given Giannis two MVPs. Unless Giannis significantly, and I'm talking like averaging mid-30s points, like 15, 20 rebounds, like he would have to take a significant step up in production for them to give it to him. Um, and that's okay because it's a regular season award. How much value? And I mean, the regular season doesn't necessarily translate to the postseason. I would say seed. It doesn't matter if Giannis does or doesn't win a championship because he's still playing well enough the regular season that you win a regular season award. That's my thought process. Kind of falls in line with certain other fan bases, but no, I don't think he's going to do it just because I could see someone like Luca or Tatum get that award for make for taking their team to the next step, especially if Boston, for example, does get that one or two seed in the East, or Luca gets the Mavericks to that like second or third seed. Because we saw at the beginning of the season, Luca was getting some attention as a possible dark horse for the MVP award. And then injury and tailing off at the end of the year, and then COVID while LeBron and Giannis are kind of continuing to distance themselves. But we saw Luka at one point be considered an MVP candidate. Yeah, I would agree. I don't really have anything to add, Bill, what you guys, beyond what you guys said. I don't, I don't think he'll three-peat. I don't think he'll win many awards until he does this, um, until he has some success in the postseason. The narrative kind of flips away from that. So, all right, we have, we did get some fake trades. But what I'm thinking we're going to do is, in the interest of time, table those and maybe do a trade episode bonanza where we ask everyone for their fake trades. We'll come in with some, and uh, and we'll just kind of see see how that goes. It'll probably be the the most useless show we've ever done, but it'll probably be pretty fun because people love to do fake trades. So we're going to take a quick break. On the other side of this, we'll do our usual miscellaneous topics. So stay tuned. All right. We're back. Let's let's do some miscellaneous stuff to to send us out. And you know, there's a lot of great stuff about the Bucks. We're gonna have a long off season ahead of us, but let's let's just do our, our usual miscellaneous stuff. So let, let's start with some rapid fire questions. All right, I have the rapid fire questions ready for you all. So it's going to be interesting. 
Um, probably going to be questions that no one's going to expect. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> first one, if you could have any non-domesticated animal as a pet, what would you choose? Adam, I don't know if you feel strongly on this point. Yikes. Uh, I don't know. Armadillo? Are those non-domesticated? I count that as non-domesticated. But yeah. pretty much I take out cats, dogs, birds, or gerbils. Yeah, I feel like an armadillo might be kind of cool. It's kind of like a weird shell. Maybe it would roll around my house. I don't know. Probably bite me. I'd probably do like a like a turtle. Like, you know, relatively, they're chill. You can set them up. They can hang out. I don't like you a huge snapper turtle, or a small no, one? no, it'd be like a little, a little guy. It would not be anything crazy. That, or I could go for like the like weird teenager with the snakes. I think that might be the other move because I, <laughs> I was interested in getting a snake when I was a kid. I'll be a hundred percent honest. So that probably would be my my uh, my second option would be a snake. All right, next one. It's a fall day. You have one choice of the hot beverage. What do you choose? I'm a hot chocolate guy, personally. Um, I'm okay with, like, teas and stuff. I'm okay with, like, mold wines. But it, it usually when I go out to, like, a coffee place or for anywhere, I always look for the hot chocolate. I've got a pretty good palate for it. I can tell based on one sip whether or not I'm going to enjoy it or not. So I would say hot chocolate. I'm, I'm very discerning as a hot chocolate drinker. <laughs> I just I wasn't expecting Riley to go. I got a, I, I have a world-class hot chocolate palate. <laughs> <laughs> you hear about sommeliers. I'm a hot chocolate sommelier. That's what I yeah. would describe myself as. You like you you taste the Swiss Miss and you just spit that stuff out. <laughs> I just I aerate. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I like like so so it's a fall day. I like like one glass of hot apple cider a year. So I'd, I'd probably do that. Maybe it'd be, if it was hot apple pie, I would do that as well. Um, but I should definitely only have one of those glasses. Um, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would go with cider. Cider for me is kind of that pick. Um, next, if you had to choose one of the following, what would it be? And I think we kind of had this question earlier, but I'm going to kind of go with the tweak of it. A, you get unlimited gas for your car. However, you have to, you have to, if you were to commute for work, it has to be a minimum hour drive. B, you get public transportation, but every time you're on there, you have to sit next to a person you cannot stand in your life. Like someone you absolutely hate. They sit next to you and try and talk your ear off. Or C, you can walk and run and you have unlimited stamina, but the weather is terrible. Man, that's tough. This is one of the hardest questions I've had to face in my 26 years on this earth. These are really good rapid fire questions. You put a lot of thought into these this week. I told you I prepared this time. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Um, To be honest, I'd probably, so the car one is the obvious one. I've done a lot of running in really crappy weather and it is awful, but I'm very used to it. Um, Assuming that like none of my stuff that I would need for work or wherever I was going would get soaked through. If it was just simply like my physical being would be inconvenienced by it, I'd probably do the running thing. 
you feel the effects of the weather, but like if you had a work laptop or backpack, that's some damage untouched. I'd probably run just because I'm so used to doing it. Then I'd, I could convince myself like, this is how I'll get the daily run in, et cetera. So I'd probably do the running of the three options, to be honest. Yeah, I was leaning towards the gas. I definitely wouldn't do public transit because I, I take public transit and I'm definitely not a guy who, I'm definitely the guy who sees his coworker about to get on the bus. And I'm like, I can wait like 10 more minutes. I'll just catch the next <laughs> one. I really don't want to talk to that person. Um, I might do the running too. So you kind of convinced me because I like the idea of like, all right, even if it's awful. Yeah, I've run in really crappy stuff too. I'm used to running in the winter or like whatever. Um, and then I get my run in and I'm like, okay, well, I got burned some cows for the day. And then I can come home and have my massive dinner or whatever. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think, I think I'd go that route. That's what I would have chose because I know if I had to sit next to the person I can't stand, I'm just going to fight. I'm just going to have to fight. <laughs> just deck them. You're going to start decking people. I'm throwing punches. punches and elbows. So yes, I went with the running as well. And then the last question, and this is less thought provoking. Favorite brand of frozen cardboard pizza? Jax. My go-to. Oh, Jax. My, my go-to is Home Run In. I love their crust. Their crust is really good. I don't think I've had that one. I'd go Jack's, but Heggie's is a close second. Is anybody a DiGiorno person? Do you ever say when you pop it in, no, it's not delivery, it's DiGiorno? Do you say that to yourself while you're in the kitchen and then <laughs> cut the pizza? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the rising crust is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, I'm not putting that right away in my shopping cart unless there's like a good ass sale. If there's a good assay, I'll do it. But otherwise, yeah, it's Jacks or Haggies by far. All right, that was good. Go. That was a good series of questions, Kyle. I like that a lot. And actually, I'm, I'm kicked. I guess I'm, I'm dishing it right back to you. It's time for the return of film review. Yeah, so we're gonna do some slight tweaks of film review because I just haven't watched movies in a while, and the movies I have watched are something I've already reviewed. Um, so we're gonna I'm gonna talk about documentaries that people could be interested in. So I'm going to start with all or nothing about the Tottenham Hotspurs. So Tottenham, a team in North London, last year um, had an interesting season. They fired their coach near the beginning after nearly winning the Champions League, which is one of the top trophies you win, finishing runner-up to my Liverpool. Um, they fired their coach. They hired Jose Mourinho, who anyone that follows English soccer in particular, he is – He's a guy that you want in front of a camera because he's so about himself. It'd be like if you could take LeBron James' ego with Jason Kidd's abrasiveness and you want to dislike that person. But then you have like a little dash of like, you see a human side of them. That's Jose Mourinho. He's kind of an asshole. He does well. It's an interesting character to watch. And it's this team that's kind of like the Bucks, where they've had really good players but haven't taken that next step. They haven't won a title. They haven't won anything, but they have some players that are really, really good. So they encapsulated last season. So far, there's been six episodes. It's an interesting series to watch. I say if you're the kind of person that likes following a sports team, um, especially, you know, see the last dance, it's not last dance quality, um, but it is, it's a good documentary to watch if you are a fan of English soccer in particular, kind of following this team that, is clearly behind its competitors, but still good enough that you hold on to a little bit of hope. So first six episodes so far, Jose Mourinho is a star. 
he's got a lot of quotes. He's again, he's someone that you want in front of a camera because he's going to be entertaining. Um, so that's what I got for film reviews so far. And I'll probably just keep doing sports documentaries until I watch a movie. <laughs> Wonderful. Check out the new season of All or Nothing. I believe it is on Amazon Prime. Prime. So if you have a Prime membership, that's how you can watch it. Wonderful. Wonderful. Check that out. Riley, do you have a fountain pen ink review? So unfortunately, I'm out of, it's been a while. So I had a really bad, like when I first re-got into the hobby, I had a really bad stretch just buying stuff all the time. I've calmed down. I do have a shipment coming in this week. uh, So that will be for whatever the next podcast. So uh, this week we're going to go for my little Le Pen. It's a plastic tip pen. I don't even know what the millimeter on this is. probably like, point eight point nine something like that so it's a little bit thicker I, th- I believe it's like egyptian aqua was the name of the color or whatever um i'm not a huge fan of plastic tip pens they're okay for like artists and things like that if you're looking for a specific color but i've used it for about 24 hours now it's just not a lot of good give with it on paper um I- i'm more toward words like the fountain pens or like a gel pen or even like a roller ball if you need to so um, if you are of the of a more artistic streak, something like this or any sort of plastic tip pen, um, it'll get it done for you for sure. And it's a lot of good shading and things like that. But um, definitely not my favorite type of pen. But it was like a buck fifty at the paper store nearby, so I figured I'd grab it and try it out. And now I know not to get any more in the future. That's a solid review. Thank you. Avoid Le Pen. Avoid Le Pen. <laughs> Don't They're going to be in my DMs later. Like, what'd you say on that podcast? <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, let's close it out with some predictions. So uh, we basically are probably going to have, let's let's presume the Clippers make it to the Western Conference Finals or whatever. Who do you guys think are going to win the Eastern Conference Finals, which is Miami and Boston? And then let's say if it's the two LA teams, who do you guys have that you think are going to go to the finals? I am going to go with Boston in the East. I think there it's a really interesting matchup between Stevens and Spolstra, but I, given that you know, let's say they're like a somewhat dead heat, I think Boston, their top five, is a little more talented than Miami, so I'd probably go for Boston. Out west, that's tough. I would probably go for the Lakers because, um, as we've seen, the refing can be su- you know suspect at times, and I think the NBA, not to get conspiratorial, but if they were going to put the uh, thumb on the scales at all, it would probably be to try and get Lakers and LeBron, et cetera, into the finals. Um, and also, in addition to that, I think as good as Kawhi is, um, to have Paul George as your other guy, and there's been numerous series where like LeBron versus Paul George has not turned out well for Paul George. Now, he's not the lead guy necessarily, but... Um, first time together kind of putting it now Toronto did put it together last year and went for it. So maybe that'll be saying, but I'm going to say Lakers, Boston, go to the finals. And then I would guess like Boston wins it. I don't know. Yeah. It's going to be really ugly. I'm not going to look forward to watching any of it really. I'm not going to watch any of it. Probably. I don't want Boston in the finals because if there's one thing I could have taken with Toronto, it's that I don't Toronto fans are annoying, but Toronto, the team I can tolerate. Now we got Boston, a team that I don't like, both in terms of the team itself and their fans. So I, I want to see Miami do it because it would be also kind of hilarious that Jimmy Butler leads this team to the finals. Um, I'll say Miami just because I believe Spolstra is going to win them. I think it's going to come down to Spolstra winning them the series off of his coaching. 
And I could see Duncan Robinson shooting a lot better than he did against Milwaukee. And in the West, I have the Lakers. I think LeBron and Anthony Davis are going to be too much for Kawhi and Paul George. Um, I don't trust the Lakers backcourt enough, but I, I go with the Lakers and then Lakers beat Miami. Um, I, I think this whole thing has been set up now that LeBron can and will completely take over and be the best player in the postseason, just like he's been the best player in the league for the last, I don't know, how many years. So, yeah, I go Lakers over Heat in the finals. I like that. I think I'm going Lakers, and I'm putting the Heat in. I I don't I don't want Boston in, man. My my boss is a Boston Celtics fan. He's given me tons of crap for last year, telling him I gloated for three seconds about how I thought the Bucks maybe might make it to the finals. He's talked to me about that for a year, saying I'm the one the reason they lost. I'm the reason they lost last year. Now I didn't talk this year. I'm the reason the Bucks lost. Um, anyway, I just don't want to see Boston in the finals. And I also think Miami has some interesting matchups for them. I think they have enough like wing defenders to deter some of, you know, Boston's ball handling wings. I also think Bam is kind of a weird matchup for them. Like, you know, good luck to Daniel Tice. He's fine. He's been really good this year for them, but I'm curious how he'll hold up against, uh, against Bam. So yeah, I don't know. I got, I got heat in the Lakers in the finals. Plus, if Miami wins, then we could do the same thing we did last year and be like, well, you know, if, if we beat them, we probably would have been champions. So by transitive property, I want them to win just because then we're the champions, essentially. <laughs> Absolutely. You can't quibble with that. That's logic. That is just pure logic there. All right, fellas, let's let's go out on that. This was a really fun mailbag episode. Thank you, everyone, for all of your great questions. They were fantastic. Um, go to brewhoop.com for our continued off-season stuff. Mitchell Maurer. Uh, put up a fantastic primer to get you ready. Tons of CBA minutia there that you're going to want to dig into and see how difficult it might be for the Bucks to make moves this offseason. Um, go up there. We'll have tons of stuff just kind of looking back at the season, grading players, all of our usual offseason stuff, getting ready for the draft in November, it looks like. Uh, and then we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll be recording throughout the offseason and everything. Um, but thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, we really appreciate you. It, it was a really weird but fun season, um, and it's been great to have anyone who listens to us and listens to us ramble on for all this time. It's been, I don't know, it's been a lot of fun. So I appreciate always having Riley and Kyle here, and uh, we appreciate you listening. And make sure to contact your legislators because nothing is being done in the in the uh, Wisconsin legislature right now, thanks to Robert Voss and Jim Steinecke and Fitzgerald. So make sure to do that. Tune into us next time. And we will talk to you again soon.